Take your Bibles and go with me to John chapter 2, looking today at verses 1 to 12. He is Lord of all creation. It is no big deal to Him to part the Red Sea, to turn water into wine. He is the God of wonders. These things are big deals to us, aren't they? Big deals to us. But there is no diminishing in His might. There is no strain upon His power. He speaks a word and it is done. He is the Lord of all creation. The Lord has been gathering around Himself a tiny clutch so far of disciples that are now traveling with Him. And it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 2, it is on the third day, after He has decided to go to Galilee, it was on the third day that there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. It's interesting to note, it does not say His father was there. His mother was there. We could deduce from the text and many other places that by this time in Jesus' life, his earthly father has gone to glory. So the mother of Jesus is there. Jesus was also invited. So we can imagine this is some family friend, somebody that they have known, they have done life with. Jesus and his mother and his small clutch of disciples have been invited as well. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. That's amazing faith. Obviously, and we'll study this as we go through, but she is deferring. His mother is deferring to his sovereign will. She is not commanding him. She is not manipulating him. But she says whatever he says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. Now, there were six stone water jars. They were there for the Jewish rites of purification. Stone jars because they, nothing ceremonially, ceremonially unclean could cling to them in their understanding of the Jewish law. So, stone jars. And each one of these, each one of these stone jars holds between 20 or 30 gallons. So let's go with a small number. Six times two is 1,220 gallons that come into wine. That's quite a bit. This is a big party. Jesus said to the servants, fill these jars with water. They filled them up to the brim... And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. 
And the master of the feast tasted the water that now had become wine. He did not know where it came from, though the servants, and I want you to notice that, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have freely drunk, then they put out the bad stuff. You have kept the good wine. Till now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did it in Cana of Galilee. It manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He went with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed a few days. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord, your signs have manifested your glory. And we, your children, have believed in you. Lord, as we think about this sign today and next week, Lord, may we stand in awe before your glory. A glory that then would condescend to bear our sin upon a cross that we might be forgiven. There is no God like you who works for those who wait upon him. And so we look to you. Bless us in your word today, in Jesus' name, amen. Notice with me John chapter 2 as we begin. There are two workings of Christ in this chapter. The first one is when he goes to a wedding and he does this miracle that we are studying where he turns water into wine. The next thing is he is going to go... It tells us in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews is at hand. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, and while he is there, he does another great sign. It's not a miracle, so to speak, but it is a great sign of who he is, that he is the Lord of the temple, and he cleanses the temple. Now I want you to notice verse 13. It tells us here that the Passover of the Jews is at hand. Passover happens early spring. That tells us that the Feast of Cana, the wedding of Cana, is happening when? This is a spring wedding. It's a spring wedding. It kind of dates it for us in the year, in the calendar of events. So Jesus is in Cana of Galilee in the spring, and there is a wonderful celebration of love as a couple unites in marriage. And Jesus is there. Following that, they go down to Capernaum, and then from there, Jesus takes his disciples, and they go down to the Passover. And I want you to think with me about these two miracles, although the second one is not really a miracle, so to speak. It is a sign of his Messiahship. 
when he cleanses the temple. But these two things that he does in this chapter stand in unbelievable contrast. Think with me of both the kindness and the severity of Jesus. In this first one, we see Jesus acting in unbelievable compassion and kindness. And in the second one, we see him severely taking control and driving the moneylenders out. And he says, you have taken my father's house and you've turned it into a place of merchandise. And he cleanses it. Big contrast here in the person of Jesus. Now, I want to think about this second, the first one we studied today. This really was one of my takeaways from my study this week. This first miracle is a private crisis that was the result of lack. We have no idea why the wine ran out. It doesn't say. Was it because this was a poor family and they just couldn't buy enough? I mean, think about this. Jesus turns, they've already drunk a lot of wine over this ceremony and over this feast. And Jesus now, after all that is done, Jesus is adding to it by taking six stone water pots that they fill to the brim, right? They're not half full. He fills them to the brim. So we got like 120 gallons of wine here. I don't know what that would cost. I don't even know what it would cost in today's world. But that's a lot. Maybe they're kind of poor. Maybe extra guests showed up. That's kind of the Star Valley thing, isn't it? Every time there's a wedding, everybody shows up just to get the reception. They may not come to the ceremony, but boy, you see a good feed going on, you're going to show up, right? And, and then you bring along your 20 kids and, and everything else. And, you know, this is the Star Valley way. Well, that's kind of by the way it was in Cain of Galilee. Everybody hears, man, there's a big party going on down. So-and-so's getting married. Let's show up there. And all of a sudden, word is spread to the surrounding region. Jesus has come from Nazareth, where he ain't even been over in Capernaum. And people have come from miles around to participate in this wedding ceremony. Maybe a whole lot more guests showed up than RSVP'd, you know. Maybe it was poor planning. Sometimes we get ourselves in trouble when we just plan poor. We think something's going to work a certain way. We don't plan right, and all of a sudden there ain't enough. Whatever the case is, this couple and this family is now kind of exposed to social stigma and ridicule. The wine has run out. And Jesus intervenes. Wow. We have a God who cares about everyday problems in our lives. This is where he starts his miracle working power. You know, this isn't a life or death thing, this isn't someone's dying. This isn't someone can't walk. This isn't someone can't see. This is, my neighbors are going to look down on me because I didn't have enough wine. Social stigma and ridicule, and Jesus intervenes. 
Now, that reminded me of a tremendous verse in 1 Peter chapter 5 when it says this, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Even when the water, or excuse me, the wine's run out. Even when you misplaced your wallet and you're like, God, where did I leave that? Or your glasses or whatever the case may be. I I think the Lord wants us to take everything to him. And here you have a mother who knows her son enough that when a crisis has arrived in this family's life, she turns to him. They don't go running to buy more. They look to Jesus. Cast all your cares upon him. He cares for you. Now, as we look at this miracle, we're going to do it in two weeks. There's a lot here. But if you think about what is going on here, first of all, we begin with a wedding. There's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother has been invited, as well as Jesus and his disciples. So they're going to a wedding. We're going to talk about the wedding today. There is also a woman's request. Now, I didn't put that there just to alliterate. I put it there because that's what Jesus says. And we've got to think about that. Why does Jesus say to his mother... Why doesn't he say, Mom, what does it have to do with me? Mom, why does he say, woman? Mothers, would you like it if your son came to you one day when you went to him with an idea or a thought where you said to him, "Uh, son, could you change the oil in my car? And your son said to you, woman, Now, Jesus didn't say it that way. He said, woman, what's your deal? I changed your diapers. Right? Why did Jesus say woman? Well, think about that. You got all week to think about that one, so read your study Bible. Wonder. There's a wonder here. Jesus turns the water. Think about all these W's we got. The wonder is Jesus turns water into wine. We have worship. We have worship. Here's another big takeaway for me this week as I thought about this. The world at large is oblivious. It's just a party. The world at large was oblivious to the intervention of Christ at the request of his people But nevertheless, they were a beneficiary of his bounty. It even says, the master of the feast didn't even know where it came from. The servants did. The disciples did. The disciples see it and they believe in him. It manifested his glory. The rest of the world, they're just having a party. And that's the way the world is, my friend, and it's always been that way. The world's just having a party. The world's just doing its thing. And yet we, God's people, are called to a work and a ministry of intercession, seeking the Lord's blessing, seeking the Lord's hand. And when the Lord moves, many times the world knows nothing of it. But we do. 
and we believe in him. We'll think about that again next week. Today, let's talk about weddings. Let's talk about marriage. Notice with me verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan and Galilee. I want to talk about weddings. I want to talk about marriage. Now, I'm talking to everybody. I'm talking to those of us that are married. I'm talking to those of us that are yet to get married. I want to do some teaching. Young people, zone in today. This institution of marriage is under attack in this world like it never before. Young people, the world is telling you all kinds of different things about what marriage is. I want to tell you today what God says marriage is. Because you need to know this, kids. We all need to know it. We need to be reminded of it. But young people, I want you specifically to understand what God in his word says about marriage and weddings. Now, think of the two different words. We're talking about marriage. We're talking about a wedding. A marriage is the union that we talk about. The wedding is the ceremony by which we become married. Correct? So the married, the marriage is the state of the individuals. The wedding is the ceremony that makes it happen. In the Bible, this couple didn't just become a thing because they hooked up. How did it get started? How did the hooking up get started? With a public ceremony. It's important you note that. Now let's think about weddings. Let's talk about some things I want us to think about. Now, a guy named David Strain, writing on a blog for the Gospel Coalition, said this, and I think it's very important to think about. A wedding is now an elective procedure. It's like getting your knee replacement surgery, I guess. It's elective. A wedding is now an elective procedure that centers exclusively on the wishes of the parties involved. Under these conditions, when Christians push back on a loved one's intention to marry, their ethical objections are often often come as a complete surprise. They are met with uncomprehending outrage. Their concerns, the Christian's concerns, are seen only as casting ill will on what the bride or the groom assumes will be their special day. This way it's, this way it's viewed in the world. Understand, Christian, our view of marriage in a very short period of time has become the minority view in America. Can I say that again? Our view of marriage, what we believe marriage is, 
is now in America the minority opinion. And when you express that opinion, you may just get yourself canceled, right? In trouble. Turned into the human resources person. Yeah. So let's think about these things. Okay, here's what we're going to talk about today. Marriage. What is marriage? Number two, is there a biblical wedding ceremony? Let's think about that a little bit. Let's think about wedding ceremonies, because if you're going to get married someday, you're going to put one together. What does that look like? Who's responsible to regulate who can marry? Right? Okay, we're going to have people enter into contracts to live together, to become a man and a wife, or in America, a man and whatever. But who's responsible to regulate that? Who really is responsible in the eyes of God to regulate who can marry? Let's ask that question. Let's think about why or why not. You know, when should I go to a wedding? Your coworker, you know, your great, great nephew invites you to some wedding in Timbuktu. Do you go? When do you say no? How do you know? Is attendance at a wedding an endorsement of the union? This is a fundamental question we need to wrestle with. Fundamental. If I go to a wedding, am I endorsing the couple? Or can I just go there out of support for this person who is my relative? Now, having said that, I want to take just a minute as we look at these things. There is more brokenness and pain and heartache in this room, not just in the world, but in this room, in regards to marriage and family than any other thing. That is a truth. What I'm saying today, you know, maybe your experience, your personal experience has in no way mirrored what we're talking about. You've had a lot of pain. What I'm saying today is in no way meant to denigrate what you've gone through, to pick on you, or even to cause you further guilt. But it is to set before you God's ideal and to teach, to help. Satan has placed in our lifetime more energy in attacking the home than any other thing. Has he attacked the church? Yes. Has he attacked individuals? Yes. Has he attacked the state? Yes. But Satan understands something. If he can destroy the home, he gets it all. He undercuts the church. He undercuts the society. 
One of Napoleon's maxims in war is related to this truth in this way. The secret, Napoleon would say this, the secret of a great battle consists in knowing how to deploy and to concentrate might. Napoleon's maxim was this, you don't fight everywhere on the battlefield all the time. You find the most vulnerable point and you concentrate all of your energy and all of your power against that point. And if you could take that point and divide your enemy, you will roll them back and you will win the day. And Satan knows that. And Satan has concentrated his his energy and his power against the home. And so as we talk about these things, as I said, it is not in an attempt to asperse or to cast blame. It is to teach, to help. What is marriage? If I walked into the mall in Idaho Falls on a Tuesday evening and I set up a booth And as people walked by, I asked them a simple question. I said, what is marriage? And I tried to get the mind of most people. I think most people would say, oh, eh. I guess it's just when two people love each other and they want to live together and they want to form something called a family, they just kind of get married and they make a home. But they really wouldn't know how to explain it. What is a marriage? You know, you can never really understand what something is for until you understand what it is. What is it? What is a marriage? Here's what a marriage is. It is an institution of God. It is not a civil contract. Please make note of that. Our society is saying it is a social contract. It is not. It is an institution of God. Every wedding ceremony I begin, I say marriage is an honorable estate instituted by God. It's an institution of God. It is not just a social contract. It is not left to society to define its terms. It comes from God. Now, many people in our world will never own the lordship of Christ over it. Nevertheless, it is what it is. Is institution of God, it is not a civil contract. It is a covenant relationship between one man, one woman for life. That is the definition. If you just could take a definition of what marriage is. Now, it is a covenant relationship. There is a covenant. It's not just shacking up. It's a covenant. And we'll talk about that a little later. And it is between a man, one man. Okay, um, It's not one man and two women. It's not two women and one man. It's biblically ordered marriage. God made Adam and God made Jill and Jane. Is that right? No, He made Adam and He made who? Eve. One man, one woman for life. And so the Bible says in Romans chapter 7, when one of the spouse dies, the spouse is then free to remarry 
because there's been a death. Now, we're not getting into divorce and remarriage and all of the things that Scripture says about the times that it is permissible for someone to remarry. That's not the intention of the message today, because if I did so, we wouldn't get out of here until, like, really late. You're going to be late anyway today, but you wouldn't get out of here really late if we stayed on that one. Nevertheless, the parameters that we understand that are clear in Scripture is this is what it is. Secondly, it is then a comprehensive union. Notice the word comprehensive. Okay? It, you know, don't do the, what do they call those things? Prenuptial agreements to protect all your assets? You're holding something back. All my worldly goods I thee endow. In other words, when I step forward and I say I am marrying someone, I am all in. It is comprehensive. It is ordered toward the procreation of children. Now, notice there, it is ordered toward that. doesn't mean every couple has children. But marriage is specifically created by God so that there can be a godly seed, it says in the book of Malachi. In other words, it is in the union of a man and woman coming together as husband and wife, that children are not only created, but also nurtured and sent forth. And there are times and places where there's single parents. We understand that. And there's, there's homes in which there are not children. But it is nevertheless ordered toward the procreation of children and the establishment of a home. Kids need to be raised. I mean, think about this. You know, I live on a ranch. We get sheep, babies called lambs, and we get calves, and we get foals, and we get kittens and puppies, and all those things live with mom for like a really short time. And you got your kids till they're 35, right? Till they're 35. I hope not. But think about that. God puts your kids in your home not for a week or a month or even just a year. We're talking about the establishment of a home. Kids need that. Now, is there a biblical wedding ceremony? The answer is no. Read the entire Bible and you will never find, you will not find in the book of Deuteronomy, when a young couple comes to you and seeks to be married, have them stand before you and say these words. There's none. There's none in the Old Testament, and there's none in the New Testament. There is no biblical ceremony. Now, that is kind of neat in a way, because what it does is it says this. We have great freedom to adapt to the culture and customs in which we live. You know, is a wedding to be indoor or outdoors? Either, whatever the couple wants, right? You want to get married up the Grays River? Go for it. You want to get married up on top of some mountain? Go for it. I'm probably not going to climb the hill with you. You know, wherever. It could be anywhere. What is said and who says it? Bible never says. Bible said, never says in the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul ever did a wedding. Never does. Never said that Paul told the church, when you have a wedding, elders, this is what you're to do. Never says anything about it. So what is said and who says it? However, having said that, it should reflect, and I guess I should say it must, 
for a Christian wedding, it should reflect biblical content and teaching on marriage. You're taking vows. So central to this is it is a vow to God and each other before witnesses. It is a vow. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says this, it is better not to vow than it is to make a vow and not keep it. It is a vow to God and each other, and it happens before witnesses. It's not just a private ceremony, although it can be small. There are witnesses who can attest to this vow, and I would submit to you on the judgment day, there will be a recollecting. In the final analysis, although there is no biblical ceremony, there are definitely unbiblical ones. Okay? There are unbiblical ones, but there is no biblical one per se. As a couple, you can write your own vows. Make sure they're biblical. Or Pastor Matt or me may say, eh, go back to the writing table. Who's responsible to regulate? Now, this is an important one in the day in which we live. Because we have the state saying, we're in charge here. We're in charge here. Well, are they? Before God? Who's in charge here? I would just say to you, and I've got to do this one quick. It could take a whole message. There are three institutions created by God for the ordering of human life. We understand this, right? God made three institutions. The home, he did that one first. Then he made the state in Genesis chapter 9. And then we have his people, the church. The assembly. So we have family, state, church. Three institutions by God. And I would simply say all three have a function and an interest in the establishment of a new family. All three do. The state recognizes a marriage as a legal contract. You break that contract, you will stand before a judge. And it should be so. Because somebody has to sort out the mess. Somebody has to decide where the kids go. You, you can't live in a society where it's just a free wheel thing and it's whoever has power is going to keep the kids. No. The state bears the sword. It has a function and an interest in the establishment of a family because it has to sort it out when it goes bad. Having said that, the state is not always regulating it according to biblical truth. We understand that, but it does have a function. Secondly, it is regulated by the church as to its moral propriety. We cannot stop somebody from getting married, but we can tell them it's wrong. And before God, we have a responsibility to say it's wrong when someone wants to get married and it is wrong. The church has a function and an interest in the establishment of a new family and to understand and to teach the moral propriety when people marry. And we don't really have the time to lay out all the different things that would make for a proper marriage. There are certain things that you understand very clearly fall outside of that propriety. And then it, we also need to understand that it is a familial tie. 
and it is blessed by the parental consent. Doesn't mean that every time someone gets married, the parents consent. But I would submit to you that when two people from separate families become one, the parents of those two separate families have a vested interest and function in the establishment of that new home. Parents, be involved in your kid's life. Parents, here's a good one. Know who your kids are dating. Because they may just bring them home and say, I've asked this person to marry me. And if that's a shock to you, wake up beforehand. When should I go to a wedding? Now, this is the big one we've all been waiting for, and I got it in at the end of the message so I can skip over it. <laughs> no, I'll deal with it for a minute. When should I go to a wedding? Whew. For me and Matt, we would put another thing there. When should I do a wedding? When should I do a wedding? When should I go to a wedding? Okay, first thing I want to say is there, to refuse to celebrate someone's love by choosing not to go when one could go is seen as a slap in the face and is highly offensive. That's just true, okay? If you get an invitation to a wedding and you choose to say no, it is going to change the relationship. It's not like somebody just says, oh, it's no big deal. It is offensive. Best illustration of that is Matthew 22, when Jesus tells a story about a guy who has a son and he's going to get married. And he invites all these people to come to the marriage. And, and the neighbor down the road says, I've got to go plow a new field today. And this guy says, I've got to go to town and buy some groceries. And this guy says, I've got to do this. And, I, and none of them come. What does he do? He sends his servants and he kills them. I mean, he was offended. Mark it down. Don't be surprised if out of conscience you say no. And I'm not telling you not to say no. But don't be shocked when you are criticized and people say, why won't they come? They just don't like me. No, if you say no, it is offensive. So you better think about when you're going to say no beforehand because it will change your relationship with that individual. That's doubly so for me and Matt. When we say no to doing a wedding, I don't like people to ask sometimes because they're like, oh, I know they'll never be back to church. Right? It's going to be offensive if we have to say no. Matthew 22. First things first, here's the first thing I want you to think about. Individual soul liberty and Christian liberty. I'm not telling you here today what you must do. Ultimately, you will give an account of yourself to the Lord. I am here to teach you. I'm here to have you think through some things. My goal is to wrestle through this so you think about it. But in the end, we're all kind of put in very difficult situations at times. I've done weddings that I wish I did not do. I could say that clearly. We're all put in difficult situations, and at times we may make a decision, and then like two years later we're like, oh, why did I do that? Or whatever. Sometimes, you know, it's just tough, and we get put in. So I'm not here to beat you up and like say, oh, if I hear that you went to a wedding for this person, we're going to disappoint. No, I'm not saying that. I'm, we're not doing any of that here this morning. I want to teach you, though, to think about this. So when it comes your way and somebody comes to you and says, 
Will you come to this wedding? You at least have thought about it in advance. So you've thought about what God would have you do. And I think ultimately that's what we need to wrestle with is what would God have me do? What will glorify God? Now, here's some of the reasons. Three reasons when you are confronted with a wedding and you know it is not a biblical marriage. There are three things that go through our mind every time. Here's the first one. I don't want to burn bridges. Like I said, it's going to be offensive. I don't want to burn bridges. I really want them to know I care. Right? We all say that. Or we'll say something like this. You know, I don't want to turn them off to Jesus. And Jesus was a friend of sinners, and he hung out with sinners, so maybe it's okay for me to do that in this situation too. Jesus was invited to the wedding, and he went. So we kind of do that thing sometimes. And then thirdly, my attendance is not an affirmation of the relationship. It's merely just my desire to have a relationship with this person. So it's kind of that thing we're talking about, you know, is my attendance at a wedding an endorsement of it? Of the couple? Or can I just go there like and distance myself from it and be like, well, since, you know, I work with this guy every day and, you know, we got to get along, I just want to build a relationship and I want to share Jesus with him, so I don't want to cut that off. Okay, that's what we wrestle with. Now let's think about it. Number one, is attendance at a wedding an endorsement of the couple's relationship? Let me just say this, because I got to do it quick. Getting out of breath. Anytime there is a public ceremony, we're talking about a ceremony, attendance at a ceremony is seen as an endorsement of the ceremony. Yes, grandson. He wants me to quit too. Right? Attendance at a ceremony is seen as an endorsement of the ceremony. What's going on? Oh, here's the illustration. This comes from Kevin DeYoung. You'll like it. It like put the knife in me to say, okay, I see your point. This guy you work with comes up to you. And he says to you on Friday night, I would like you to come to a ceremony. I am being inducted as grand champion or whatever, grand chief of our local order of the KKK in the city park. And I would really like you to come and support me. If you go to that ceremony that is inducting him into the KKK, can you separate yourself from an endorsement of the KKK? No, it is impossible. You try to run for office someday, that one will follow you, right? That will be on social media. He went to this event 45 years ago in a city park in the middle of the night. To go to that ceremony is an endorsement of what is going on. You cannot get around it. 
When you go to a wedding, which is a public ceremony, it is an endorsement of what is being formed. You could say it's not, but everybody else around you will say it was. Secondly, this is an important one, and then I'll shut up and get out of the pulpit. Is it hypocritical to go to a wedding of a heterosexual couple who has been living together in sin and then to not go to a gay wedding? Is it hypocritical? Someone throws that one in your face because you go to a marriage ceremony of some people who have been living together, but they're a man and a woman. And then you get invited to a gay marriage and you say no. Was that, were you being a hypocrite? I'm going to say no, and here's why. These thoughts come from a great thinker, by the way, and it's not me. This is John Piper answering this question, but I loved his reasoning, and I put my own reasoning to it. Here's why it's not. Two reasons. Number one, what is marriage? It is a man and a woman. The second marriage is not a marriage. You could say it is, but it's not a marriage. It is a false marriage, and so it's not even the real thing. So the institution itself, in the second one, you are celebrating a lie. It's not a marriage. The first one is. Now, here's the other part of this that's important. In the second one, the gay marriage... You have a couple that is solemnizing, I think that's the right way to say that word, with a solemn oath, a vow before God that God will hold them to, to enter into a sinful union. And God is going to look at that way. Unless they repent and come to faith in Christ, God will hold them accountable for that vow. And they cannot be doing anything besides entering a sinful relationship. So you are witnessing and endorsing the starting point of something that is going to, if they continue in it, bring upon their head the eternal wrath of a holy God. And you are witnessing to it. In the first case, though, you have a heterosexual couple, a man and a woman, who have been in a sinful relationship that is disordered but they are moving from a sinful relationship into a what? An ordered relationship before God that is no longer sinful. They may not be believers, but they are still entering into the right thing, and by entering into the right thing, they are ending the sinful union. Puts it on a completely different foot. So is it hypocritical? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. It doesn't mean that you want to go to every wedding ceremony of a heterosexual couple that's living together. I'm not saying that. 
but it's not hypocritical. And those are the reasons. Uh, we got to close. As we close, I want to just close by saying this. I reflected on Ephesians 5 in preparation for this message as well, thinking about the relationship. This He says this is a mystery. A husband, a man, a woman becoming one. This is a mystery. That's the Latin word. It is a sacrament. It is a mystery. Husband, wife, man, woman, one. And it all portrays the love of God for his church. And the covenant he entered into with us to save us, to redeem us. And God does not forsake his word. He will be faithful. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that as we think of the many messages that bombard us as adults, but doubly so, the minds of our kids. And sometimes it's just so hard to counteract that message that is just bombarding them. I pray that, Lord, you would bind Satan in such a way that as you told the story, Lord, about uh, about the, the seed that is sown and how the, the birds of the air come and scarf it up and carry it away and it doesn't penetrate and it doesn't bring forth fruit. Oh Lord, I pray that you would bind the, the work of Satan in the hearts of our young people so that this word that has gone forth would not be taken from them, but that, Father, it would fall into their hearts and bring forth fruit. So these young people in our midst, Lord, would grow up to enter into marriages that honor you and would create families that bring forth children to your glory. Lord, if there is anything that I worry over in this church more than anything else, It is our children. Lord, keep them in your hand. We give them to you. As Sarah, or as Hannah did, Samuel, we give them to you. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.